Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, it's a blessing to be with all of you again. It's been a busy couple of weeks. In fact, we just culminated uh, a little bit of a busy season of life at the seminary because we had a alumni institute, we call it, which is uh, just a fantastic idea. Dr. Potter had originally started it, and now Dr. Lofquist is in charge of it. But essentially what it is, is we invite all the alumni for Shepherds to come back, whoever wants to, and then we make it available by live stream to the other alumni, just as a way to continue education on select topics. And this Thursday, Friday, we had our most recent Alumni Institute, and we did it on the subject of marriage, the family, sexuality, and I had the privilege of doing a session on transgenderism. And it's it's a tough topic, especially today's current events just really put the issue at the fore. And no doubt in the future, we'll be doing some more episodes on those issues. But I wanted to take a little break from dealing with some of those issues and do some off-the-cuff thoughts uh, taken from Psalm 115. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this psalm is I've been thinking about it recently, the, the last couple weeks, just through some devotional reading and thinking through some things. And there's just some incredible theology that comes out of here. And of course, if you're familiar with the name G.K. Beale, he is a amillennialist, but you know, good things come from amillennialists as well. And I have some good friends who are amillennialists. So uh, G.K. Beale, a uh, good Bible scholar that he is, has written a book uh, essentially expositing Psalm 115 and talking about the theme of idolatry in scripture. And he just does a great job. It's in the uh, the Gray New Studies in Biblical Theology, NSBT, I think it's called. And it's just a fantastic approach. He does a great job in in dissecting some of the things that I've thought through in in looking at in Psalm 115. And so I want to bring us through some of these some of these thoughts and just uh, apply some of it. And more and more that I read Psalm 115, I was reading it again this morning as devotional exercise, just thinking through it. The more and more I just appreciate all that's brought out of this psalm and there's so many different facets that can be applicable to our life. So overall, the big point that I want to get across is that this psalm teaches us that we become like what we worship. But there's so many different ways to expand that point. But overall, I think that's such a great uh, note to just hang on to is that we become like what we worship. And I think that's you know just such a revealing, profound statement. So in Psalm 115, the psalm starts off in just this great chorus, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And just from the outset, I, I think that this is something that we need to observe as Christians, as those who are interested in Psalms and having prayers that are appropriate to honor and glorify God. And this is, this is a typical theme in the Psalms. I, I've mentioned this before, but I have the privilege of teaching a Psalms class this semester and that's just been such a blessing to me personally, as I've been looking through a lot of the 
the elements that are involved in specific psalms. And one that keeps coming through is this desire to glorify God and to see his name exalted. And I think that is just such a precious component to the Christian faith, is that whatever we are doing as Christians, it's not for our glory, not even ultimately for our benefit, but ultimately our deepest desire is that God's glory would be would be fulfilled and expanded and multiplied. And so here at Psalm 115, as you go through the whole psalm, you, it seems to be that there are difficulties for the psalmist and for the nation at this point, and we're not sure exactly what that is, but a lot of commentators have assumed that this psalm was written during the exile or shortly after the exile, just because of how the nations are kind of oppressing Israel. Although I would say just quickly that there wasn't really a time in Israel's history where the nations didn't uh, oppress Israel or at least uh, be adversarial toward them. So this first verse gives us a, a helpful insight into the motivation of the people. And this is what ought to be on the heart of all Christians is that we don't really, it, it's not just for our benefit, but it's ultimately for God's glory that we seek in answer to our prayers. And I love the second line in this first verse. He says, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. In other words, for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of what you have promised, it's ultimately so that others can look at what you have done and said, yes, this is a faithful God, one who is, who is acting in accordance with what he has promised to do. So those elements are very important. So then the psalmist goes on. And in verse two and three, he raises a question and answers it. So in verse two, he says, why should the nation say, where is their God? And really, this is a pejorative statement. No other way to take it. Uh, he's basically asking the question saying, this isn't appropriate. This isn't right. Why should the, the nations that are looking at is Israel say, where is their God? Because the question implies the fact that the evidence of God isn't there. The fact that they're asking the question would indicate that they don't see anything which would al allow them the alternative viewpoint saying, oh, the God is very active and taking care of them. So the psalmist raises that question. And in verse three, there's uh, it, actually a, a neat little trick, if you want to say it that way in Hebrew, where typically in the Psalms, the the connector, the, the normal uh, vav is, is what it's called in Hebrew you you don't have that very often in the Psalms because in Hebrew poetry, you typically just have line by line comparison. But here you do have the line introduced by a Vav, which is a disjunctive use, which which connects it with what comes before, but also shows that this is a contrast. So it's not really translated in many of the English translations, but you could probably translate it some some way like truly our god is in the heavens or but but in reality our god is in the heavens so there's a contrast here in verse 3 saying yeah the nations are asking the question where is their god but everyone needs to know the fact that our god is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases and so the answer to the question where is their god the answer is that our god has his dwelling in in the highest realm of creation. Uh, in fact, he is above creation. And 
in contrast to the description of the idols, which is coming in verses four to eight, uh, the God of Israel is the one who is not constrained by physical location. He is not the one who is like creation in any sense. So he is far above in the heavens. And so just as far as perspective wise, God has this, this sovereign viewpoint. But then also in the second line, he also has the sovereign action and he does all that he pleases. And I love the simplicity of that statement. And I don't think that we ever should lose sight of that is that whatever God wants to do, he does. His His will cannot be thwarted, according to Job's testimony at the end of the book of Job. And we understand that what God wants to have accomplished, he will accomplish. And that is an, an incredible blessing for the one who has has followed the Lord, who has bowed the knee to him. We we rejoice in that fact. Uh, and we we acknowledge that nothing can stand in the way of the will of, of God. So this is the God who, who the Israelites worship. This is the God who Christians today worship. We, we all bow the knee to this creator, the one who is in the heavens and who has this sovereignty and does whatever he pleases. And now we have a transition in, in thought starting in verse four, where we have a discussion about the gods, uh, the other gods, as it were. So in verse four, we see, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So in other words, the stress there is on the fact that the gods of the nations, as we are to view them, uh, they're just the product of, of human hands, not divine work, not any kind of special assembly required. You know, it's the, the picture here is these gods are, are basically purchased at Ikea and assembled. You know, that's the, that's the idea. And this is very similar to, uh, in Isaiah 40 to 48, you have that same theme where, uh, Isaiah is getting on the people because he's saying, listen, these false gods, when people make them, they use half of the wood material to warm themselves with a fire. And then the other half, they bow down and worship to it. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. And so here too, the psalmist is bringing out this theme saying, listen, these idols are nothing. They're the work of human hands, of human hands. And so he expounds this in verse five and he says, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. And then he continues in verse six, they have ears, but they do not hear noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And essentially just going down the list, saying, listen, there's, there's these representations, these symbols, but these symbols do not affect reality. And so these idols, as, as we can describe them, are, are literally dumb. They are literally blind. They are literally mute, deaf. You know, you have these, these components, which are describing these gods in very vivid lack of physicality, lack of actuality. And so in, in describing the idols this way, it's, it's axiomatic. It, it makes sense. We understand these are just wood, stone. Uh, these are just ceramics. These, these are, these representations of gods are in and of themselves nothing. They are components made of human hands. They, they don't actually contribute to reality in speaking or in hearing or anything like that. So in reality, there's just a very stark uh, picture painted here, a contrast between the God of Israel and the gods that 
are made by the nations. Now, here's one of the major, major takeaways. And I, I would just say this is one of my favorite parts of the psalm, really. And that's found in verse 8. Because in verse 8, the culmination of this, of this degradation of the idols is brought forward. And so in verse 8, the author says, those who make them, that is the idols, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So let me say that again. Those who make them, that's the idols, become like them. That's the idols. So what he's saying is that those who trust in the idols, those who make the idols, who participate in their worship, who put their trust in these idols, who are forming them, they are actually becoming like the idols who have mouths, but they don't speak, who have eyes, but they don't hear. They have ear, or sorry, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. This is what you are becoming like if you are worshiping these things. So in other words, it's a, it's a complete degradation. It's a cycle where, where he's saying that because you are worshiping the creation instead of the creator, you are actually having a deleterious effect upon you. You are becoming desensitized. You are no longer able to hear. You are no longer able to see. You're no longer able to, to smell, you know, have these, have these senses. And it's, it's a punishment is, is what it is. And I think that this theme shows up throughout scripture, but here it's put forward in very vivid detail where the psalmist is saying, those who participate in idolatry become desensitized. That's part of the punishment or the judgment, you could say, in how you're participating in that. And I would just say, crossing over even into the New Testament, this theme is represented so clearly in multiple places, but I can't help but think about Romans 1 and just the, the great passage on God's revelation in, in creation and how all this goes together found in verse 18, uh, well, the section beginning in verse 18 through the end of chapter 1 through, through verse 32 there, you have Paul saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in other words, he's saying, listen, this is, this is revealed. God's revelation is revealed to all humanity and mankind is suppressing the truth uh, by their unrighteousness. And as he goes on to explain this theme, he goes uh, in verse 21, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in other words, he says, even though they had this awareness of God, even though they could observe God in creation, they refused to do the right thing and honor him as God or give thanks to him, but rather the futility of their thinking uh, became a reality. So in other words, there's a degradation that takes place there as well. And so he explains that starting in verse 22 and following, he says, claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is, uh, we often talk about the great exchange with regard to uh, our sin being placed on Christ and us receiving the benefits of a righteous uh, standing before the Lord. That is definitely uh, often referred to as the great exchange. Well, 
This is also a lesser exchange, if you want to say it that way, but it's it's pretty significant. It's the significant exchange where somebody exchanges the worship of the creator God for creation, and therefore you have God uh, allowing them to progress down the line of uh, degradation, and so they end up becoming further and further corrupted. This continues, this line of thinking in verse 24 of Romans 1, where you have it says, God therefore gave them up it to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, and Paul goes on uh, with that as well, uh, picking up on that theme, talking about how even uh, sexuality, uh, uh, perverted sexuality is evidence of that. Uh, degradation. So we don't need to go into all those details, but we can appreciate the macro point here where the point is when you give up worship of the creator, when you have embraced a different form of worship, whether that be something as, as much as rank idolatry, uh, it, like Buddhism, Hinduism, any kind of actual idolatry, uh, that obviously comes into play. But I would also say that Given the biblical themes here that are being supported, we also have this very uh, firm concept of you, you could even say this would apply to a secularism, which although it rejects religiosity, uh, it says that it's not religious in the sense that it's by definition secularism. Secularism actually takes the form of a religion with even sacred texts, um, devotion being given to human autonomy, etc. So even though something would claim to be anti-religious or not uh, not given to religious cultic activity, uh, something like secularism also could fall prey to this idea of idolatry, where you idolize the freedom or sexual freedom of man. You know this this happens all the time, and in the same way, when you worship anything other than God you fall prey to this to this degraded sequence. And I think that's the major point, is that we understand as Christians, those who are sensitive to what Scripture teaches, we are created by the Creator, by God, to be worshipers. And so we are we are we are in tune to worship. And when we worship something, when we function uh, with our, with how we are supposed to worship, I mean, whether it be a, a foreign God or the true God, we actually invest our life and become more, more, uh, in tune with, with pursuing that. And I think to a lesser degree, we probably know this by illustration, just in those people that we appreciate, whether it be husbands and wives, whether it be boyfriend, girlfriend, whether it be teacher, student, I don't know what other relationships there are in life. I'm sure there are others. Uh, if people have friends that they really appreciate, um, significant others, whatever, there is something that happens where because you are, uh, you are in, you know, fully involved with that person and appreciating them and loving them, that is something you you end up becoming like them in many ways. And uh, it's probably well known with the older couples that have been married, you know, 60 years and whatever. It's such a, such a fun thing to see. And a lot of times, you know, they just act the same way in many, many areas. 
And that's just a well, well known fact that you have this, this illustration where two people really appreciate, adore, love one another. And so they, they are in a process of becoming like what they adore and what they are appreciating. And that's a lesser illustration to what our relationship with God is to be like, but it gets the point across, I think, where you do have this adoration, this, this supreme love, which is supposed to be there, this supreme commitment. Well, if that's true and in, in force there, then you're going to be coming like the creator in the sense of exemplifying his attributes, etc. That's how he's created us. Well, if that process is involved with false deities or false, uh, substitute gods, whether it be secularism or whatever, then we ultimately become desensitized. Uh, we become more like the creation instead of like the creator. And that ought not to be, but it's one of those things that we can observe uh, day in, day out. Uh, the desensitized conscience that many people go around life with. We see people who are pursuing uh, goals and aims that are against God's created order. Uh, in fact, even in Romans 1, the, the primary examples that ro- that Paul uses in Romans are the uh, the homosexual lifestyles, basically, where you have women with women and men with men. And those are examples that Paul uses at saying, listen, this is, this is strong evidence of those who have abandoned God's creation, abandoned worship of the creator, and now they're all messed up because essentially they, they're worshiping creation instead. And so this is, this is a very strong, uh, theological principle, which I think as Christians we should be attuned to is that we do become like what we worship. And, you know, there is, uh, there is strong application here to your neighbor, you know, who's, who's an unbeliever. Well, obviously, uh, if whatever he's worshiping, that is desensitizing him to the things of God. And this, by the way, is another good reason to, to appreciate the fact that salvation is a picture of God coming in and breaking open our hard hearts because those who are hard hearted, they're not going to turn to God unless God sovereignly intervenes and softens in the, uh, words, the word picture of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, God gives us a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. And so that word picture is, is incredibly, uh, appropriate for understanding how God relates to this. Now let's take this one step further and there's one more dot to connect. And that would be with the connection between idolatry and the New Testament exhortation to hear if you have ears to hear and if you have eyes to see, etc. Although there's a lot of places that could be discussed with regard to this theme, I think we have to start at Isaiah 6 because that's basically the foundation for all this. And in Isaiah 6, you have the commission of Isaiah the prophet and he's going to go to Israel and he says, well, how long should I... Uh, be talking to the people this way and uh, what should my message be? And so God tells him, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. So actually one of the kind of crazy things about that passage in Isaiah 6 is that 
Isaiah going to the people and proclaiming is actually a part of God's judgment upon them because he's proclaiming the right message. But because they are not worshiping God and obeying God, their eyes are dull, their ears are are stopped up, and they're not going to respond appropriately. Rather, it's actually going to further harden them. I've I've heard it said, and I love this saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, right? So just the same truth can be revealed to two totally different individuals, and the truth can harden the hearts of one individual, and it can soften the hearts of another individual. And so in Isaiah 6, you have God proclaiming the fact that, you know, the truth is going to be proclaimed, but the people are not going to have eyes to see. They're not going to have ears to hear. They're not going to be able to respond because they're, they, they have not submitted to God and this is going to be an element of judgment instead. Well, as you trace that theme into the New Testament, then you have places like Matthew eleven fifteen, where Jesus you know, calls out to the people and says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is something common that Jesus would say uh, quite frequently. And part of this definition, if you just say like, well, is this a common saying? Well, I think when we're talking about this, the the way he's saying it is, isn't so much just a common Greco-Roman saying or anything like that, as much as it is picking up on the Old Testament theology that's involved here saying, listen, do you understand uh, what, what the ears symbolize and do you have the ears to hear? Have you actually the capability to, to obey, to follow, or are you like your forebearers in Isaiah six, where you are, uh, stopped up, you are, you are blinded and you are continuing to, uh, to resist the things of God. In fact, this same theme is also brought out in the parables in Matthew 13, where Jesus says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So in other words, part of the way, uh, part of the reasoning behind Christ's launching into parables in Matthew 13 is because of the desensitization of the people that he's talking to. And so it's part of a condemnation, part of an element of mercy in one sense as well, I would say. But this is, this is part of the reasoning. And then it doesn't just stop in the ministry of Jesus, but also in Revelation, for example, to seven, uh, you also have, uh, the message to the church there where it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So this same kind of thought process is involved throughout the New Testament. And I think it's really hearkening to this Old Testament theology of this, this symbolism of the body and its receptivity to the message of God. So putting it together, I would say that uh, when you get to the New Testament and you get this language of he who has an ear to hear, let him, let him hear, it's saying, who are you really worshiping? Do you have the capability of listening to this message or are you stupid and dumb just like the dumb, stupid idols that you worship? And that is you know, a very sobering reality. And so in, in many ways, there were a lot of people who were blinded. They were deaf. They, they did not receive the message that Christ brought. And that's because they were idolatrous. They had rejected the true God for a version of their own making, even though they would say that they were monotheistic 
in the in the case of the Jews, they would uh, give give at least verbal uh, assent to the fact that they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But ultimately, they had concocted their own version of God, and so they had they too ha- were guilty of of being desensitized. And so that's that's a sobering reminder. You know, we, we don't want to, at least applying this to our own lives devotionally and everything, we would not want to, uh, be desensitized in any way to the things of God where we create our own, our own God in whatever form that would be. And I'm not saying it would be to the same extent if we're believers. Obviously, I think the Holy Spirit is, is going to ultimately be involved in that process and help us from making, uh, you know, just terrible mistakes in in many ways but at the same time i would say that there is a there is a very sobering reality where just uh when we take the theological principle here where we misunderstand the the true creator god we we assert things about him that are not true or we neglect things about him that are true then that also misdirects our own thinking about god and we become desensitized to a certain degree about who God is and what he would require from us. So I think it's helpful to think about. I hope it's encouraging to you. I wasn't planning really on doing an episode on Psalm 115, but I thought it was a lot of fun to think through it. And as I was just meditating on it, I thought I'd give it a go. So I hope it was helpful to you. And if not, you can always just tell me and say that was terrible. I was not helped at all. So I love hearing from you. Uh, Please reach out if you have something to say. Uh, You can contact me through my website, peteryeaman.com. You can also access some of the blog articles that I've written there. You can also find out more information about the seminary, shepherds.edu. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.